You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Today we're going to continue through the gospel account here. Chapter 13, we read last week as Stephen Hall came in and started chapter 13, is the beginning of what we call... Uh, the Upper Room Discourse. This is really the onset of the Passion Week where Jesus specifically, privately teaches his disciples. His public ministry is finished. He's now honing in on the Twelve and a few others. Um, John recorded more of what Jesus said and did in the Upper Room than any other Gospel writers. John's record of Jesus' private teaching to the Twelve from the Triumphal Entry and to his arrest, there's an overlap in story in all of, the, all of the Gospels. But this present section of John, in John chapter 13, contains ministry that Jesus directed almost exclusively to the Twelve. So that's significant, that's important for us. The Synoptics Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they contain more of Jesus' teaching to the Twelve in the course of his public ministry, where John gave us more of his teaching here in the upper room. Okay? Push. It's an inside comment. Most commentators would agree that this instruction was specifically designed to prepare the twelve for leadership in the church. Okay. The beginning of this chapter was preparation, as Pastor Dude just shared with us. Beginning of chapter 13 is beginning the Passover meal. And he was preparing. He took off his outer garments and he put a towel and he stooped down in the lowest of lows to serve his disciples by cleaning their feet, by washing their feet. Just an incredible symbol, but incredible teaching and leadership here by Jesus to show us what servant leadership looks like. One commentator, although says, at the first supper, the feeding of the 5,000, which was mainly to Jews, the Jewish guests proclaimed him to be the Messiah King. In his second supper, if you will, the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus, Jesus was mainly feeding the Gentiles and he was acclaimed to be the priest or, I'm sorry, the son of man. And now in this last supper, the Lord's Supper, we see him mainly to the 12 and he is the true priest, the true sacrifice, the true son of God for them. Thus, this commentator says, these three suppers seem connected, each leading up, as it were, to the other. So where does that take us today? That's what we're going to dive into now. Before we do, have you ever been, have you ever walked into a situation or been in an awkward scenario where some stuff is going on, conversation is happening, and you just have no idea what's going on? Never happened to you? Some of you, it might happen more often than it should, right? But I want to tell you this story. This is a true story, okay? So uh, before ministry, I was a teacher. I taught in high school. And I was teaching in Kentucky. I was teaching a high school accounting class at the time. This was first period. I was teaching a high school accounting class. In the lesson, I had, you know, done some stuff, you know, incredible teaching probably, accounting. And uh, I was walking around answering questions that these students had. And so I'd walk around, talk to someone, okay, move around, uh, you know, kind of management by walking around a little bit. Evidently, true story, 
I'm walking through to talk to someone over here, and as I do, um, I had bumped into either like a sharp edge of the desk or like a bolt or a screw or something that was sticking out just enough, and it clipped the outside seam of my back pocket. When it did, it ripped my pants from the outside seam of my back pocket to the inseam of my rear end. Okay? You'd think, I feel like a guy that has uh, uh, quite a bit of self-awareness. I had no idea. I had no idea that this was, and I don't know if you know anything about high schoolers, okay? They were eating me alive, okay? I'm sure of it. But here's, I promise you this was true. After lunch, fifth period, now I'm teaching a computer class. I was a business communications kind of teacher. It was my major. And so, fifth period. First period, second period, third period. Okay, you know the Fifth period, I was like, any other questions? And uh, a young guy, young, young kid raises his hand. He's, I, I got a question, Mr. Barton. Walk over to him. And I was like, what's up, man? What you got? And he goes, Mr. Barton, I don't have a question. But you ripped your pants, dude. Okay? <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking? Okay. You know? I had no idea. Thankfully, this sweet young boy, I mean, I had to have been just getting eaten alive all day. I'm just glad I had, you know, some clean underwear on at the time, you know. But my point is I had no idea what was going on. No clue. In this section, what we're going to read today what it was must have been an awful situation for the disciples. They had absolutely no idea what Jesus was about to share with them. We kind of have this, you know, uh, Mandela effect, if you will, when it comes to this, because we are so inundated with the story of Judas, right? We know he's the betrayer. It's like Benedict Arnold, Judas. Uh, to Brute, you know, we know these characters in our life because we're so inundated with the story. It's like uh, some uh, of our older saints might remember watching Star Wars for the first time, but if none of you have watched Star Wars, you probably know who Luke Skywalker's father is. Spoiler alert, it's the one who's Darth means father in, uh, in German, I believe, or something like that, or Vader. Vader means, uh, de- anyway. Spoiler alert. That's kind of what we're walking into in this. We're figuring this out. So my encouragement, my challenge to you as we read and hear this passage, hear it with fresh eyes and ears that no one gave us, they didn't have a spoiler alert like we did when it comes to this story. Okay, so my outline, if you're a note taker, I've broken this section into four points. The first point is the prediction. This is where Jesus anticipates his betrayal. Secondly, we're going to look at the report where Jesus makes public that his betrayer is in the room. Third, we're going to look at the confusion the disciples have. They have no clue. They're totally unaware. And fourth, lastly, the reveal where Jesus unmasks the traitor. The prediction, the report, the confusion, and then the reveal. We'll start off with the prediction, verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. 
I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, and I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus anticipates his betrayal. Starting in verse 18 here, we see a shift in Jesus' communication <clears throat> excuse me, to the disciples from what he had been sharing in verse 17. Remember, Jesus had been prepping for the supper at the point he changes. He, he uh, washes the disciples' feet. He gives an unbelievable lesson of the disciples of what service looks like in the kingdom. But now this shift stops after verse 17. Verse 17 ends with, blessed are you if you do them. This section of scripture isn't broken up uh, by a week. This is the same encounter that he was just, in the, just washing the disciples' feet, and now comes verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. Verse 17 ends with, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is clear that this blessing isn't for all of you disciples. Prepping the runway. I know who I have chosen. Okay, that's, I'm only a verse in and we're unpacking some, some deep stuff here. I know whom I have chosen. There was no mistake. This wasn't a, a gross oversight in the PR department of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God for picking Judas. This wasn't a mistake. He knows. He knows. John 6, 64 says this, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. John 6, 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil, is a devil. So what insights can we glean from just this first verse of this, this text? What can we learn Jesus chose his own betrayer. This shows us that the most despicable act is the betrayal of the Son of God was an integral part of his redemptive plan of salvation. Okay? Now, if, if this doesn't get the wheels churning a little bit, something might be off, okay? He's choosing evil to accomplish good. What does this mean? If this immediate question that should come to mind is, of all the people, Jesus, that you could have chosen, why him? Why him? If you continue on this, this train of thought, you could, you could see where I'm taking the leap here of God of all the trees you could put in the Garden of Eden, apple, orange, pecan, you put a knowledge of the good and evil tree? You with me? You track? And this is a question that should come up if we're reading the text. Well, why? This is a little bit of a tease to keep you guys attentive this morning as we kind of celebrate third summer with the weather here. But he answers his own question right away. He says, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. Again, this is not a surprise. 
This validates them. One glaring reason why the Scriptures are to be fulfilled. The Scriptures will never not be fulfilled. They will never not be fulfilled. It's important to us because if, if God's Word is not fulfilled in any way, in, in any case, then God is not God. And we should question His character. But for the fact that His Word is never invalidated, that it always holds true, is very good news for us. Because that means He is who He says He is. This is also a glorious truth, that if God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. That's really good news for those in Christ. It's really good news. He ends verse 18 by quoting Psalm 41, verse 9. He says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This was a story of David uh, generations before prophesying here about what was going to happen with the Savior. Verse 19, it says, Jesus is trying to bring some clarity. And I just love it when Jesus is ultra clear in his reasoning and explanation of something. Verse 19, what he is saying I don't want you to have any doubts that when you see what's about to unfold, that all of a sudden you question, is this really the Christ? Is this really the holy Messiah that we had been anticipating? Jesus anticipates it and makes it aware. This is an example of Jesus being a true prophet of God. Verse 20, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Throughout John, it's, it's really clear, and we've shared it in this pulpit, how John uses the analogy of light and light in the world. And here, Jesus is reaffirming that his mission of light in the world has been taking just to this point, and that his followers are now linked, have been linked, to that mission. Jesus anticipates his betrayal. Let's look at verse 21. Some shocking news to the disciples. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Do you imagine being in that room, having no idea? You're walking around with your brothers, you've, you've made camp, you've had dinners, you've seen hardships, you've seen miracles, you've seen incredible acts happening, people coming to faith. Jesus' life, and then Jesus drops this in the lap. One of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. He's troubled in his spirit. Now, this is John's uh, equivalent, his equivalent language to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Deep, deep, deep sadness. He's distraught in spirit. Even though Jesus knew of it long before now, he was deeply grieved by the betrayal of his friend. He felt it in his soul. Judas had experienced life with, been taught by, 
and even served by Jesus. His failure to follow was in intentional opposition, and it was leading him to total destruction. This is a humbling text, humbling, humbling passage. Verse 19 through 21, I I think, encapsulates Jesus' thesis of the upper room discourse. Why he is sharing these things specifically to the disciples. I think he wants the disciples to know that despite this huge betrayal, despite the huge betrayal that's about to happen, their mission is not compromised. Despite the fact that this man who they've been walking with, who knew they rubbed shoulders with, they'd done good together, despite the fact that that's going to happen, their mission is not compromised. Everything he has taught is not changed. It's not changed. Now, there's a bit of a pastoral moment here that I get to enter into with you. And I say this with great humility. Whatever dark season you're going through right now, maybe you've been waiting in, maybe walking through, maybe you've been walking through with your gospel community or your family or extended, extended family, whatever darkness that you are walking through, know this. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. I should bring great relief. If we, would, if we would ponder eternity for a moment, these light and momentary afflictions that are real, these seasons of dark, deep darkness that we experience here on this side of eternity, know, church, the kingdom is coming. Don't take my word. Take his. Take his. Now, I would say that this is not only good leadership on Jesus' part here to the Twelve, but one way Jesus shows his disciples and he shows us love is by preparing us for what's coming. This is good love that Jesus would show them and he prepares them immediately for what is coming in the next few hours. He's letting them know. This is very loving. This is very loving of him. And and you know what? This is what we do when we come together and we remember the truths of scripture, Scripture and we sing and we proclaim these truths together. And the Holy Spirit reminds us of what is coming. That's why it's so important to be here, to worship in spirit and in truth together. Because what we're doing, we come to church on Sunday because we have work to do. We have work to remember the work that Jesus has done. And we recall, we remember who we are in Christ. We proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. We look to him. That's the work we have to do is to remember. And this is vitally, vitally important. We ought not devalue or think that something is less important. This is the most important thing you can do. It's to behold your king. And as we behold him, the Spirit reminds us and prepares us for what is coming. 
scriptures say for good works to walk into, but ultimately the picture of eternity with him. You know, as I was thinking about this, I, I kind of went down a rabbit hole in my thinking, but I, I wanted to share it with you. It might relate. And it's so common that whenever in the world something bad happens or there's a gross min- misconduct of, of authority and leadership, specifically in the church or in the body of Christ, that often people are so quick to say, this is why I can't ever be a Christian. This is why I can't ever believe in your in your jesus is because you would do something like that and these these false maybe false believers who do despicable acts what the world will just cling to it and eat it up because in that moment it justifies their unbelief it gives them credence to say this is why i don't believe well if these evil things could happen to our god what makes us think that they couldn't happen to us? How could this be? There's no way the thought process, there's no way this awful evil could happen if God were who he claims to be. Therefore, I don't believe in God. You hear this, the paradox in reasoning. There is no God, and I'm mad at him. There is no Jesus. There is no ultimate judge. But I don't believe what he says. Doesn't add up. Now this is a short thought that I had on this is that two things can be true at the same time. Evil can exist in the world and yet God can be in complete sovereign control this is a mystery that confounds us but it is also something that we could discuss at length shameless plug gospel community is a great venue for to walk out some of these things but this discussion is a legitimate topic to wrestle with but my point is this jesus knew this and prepared his disciples to what specifically was going to happen as we like I mentioned before come together to proclaim and remember the truth of the gospel we are prepared in the same way point three even the air conditioner doesn't know if it's fall yet yeah point three the confusion verses 22 through 25 The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? This is where we see the disciples, like me in, in the high school classroom, had no idea. No clue imagine that they had no the utter astonishment that the disciples show that judas it shows that judas was masterful in his deception no one suspected that he had been in contact with the high priests to get this deal this collusion ball rolling no idea rc sproul he once commented 
Judas had hidden his betrayal so carefully that the other disciples had no inkling of it. In verse 23, John here refers to himself. Now, he says the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? It's, I love kind of when Scripture does this, you know, it's like uh, he's writing and he's saying the one who, he's writing, it's not untrue that uh, John, Jesus does love him, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't love the other disciples. It's just a special marker. Maybe there's a special affinity here that John uses. But John is motioned to by Simon Peter to ask Jesus, who, who is it? Who, who is it? I thought I knew these guys. I thought I knew these men. Who could it be? Now, um, part of my job is I get to study the Bible, and I love that. I count it a huge blessing. But there's a, there's a little bit of a nerdy Protestant joke that we can enter here that we need to remind our Catholic friends that even the first Pope, Peter, had needed an intermediary to lay his requests before Jesus, right? Amen? You get the joke here? I mean, good. <laughs> even Peter had to go through John. That's the joke. Okay. Reclining at the table. Should have shake it up a little bit, you know. Reclining at the table, what is the significance of this? Well, if we recall just a chapter before in verse 12, we see where Jesus is anointed for burial. Jesus was anointed uh, by Mary, but just a few weeks ago, Pastor Adam shared three responses of worship that we see. We see, number one, from Martha, we see a response of service. Right? She is serving, she's making sure all of these things and preparations are being handled we see the response of Lazarus where he's reclining at table with Jesus he's just being with Jesus and then we see the account of Mary where she anoints she worships him in adoration by dumping out the perfume at his feet now before we get to it the person of Judas okay I kind of made mention before if we if we were to do a bit of a uh, a bit of a character study years ago I read an article uh, by some biblical scholars and they were kind of taking a, a roundabout approach to do a, a business study if you will and in this business study they were trying to look at are there any significant reason reasons as to why Jesus would choose these 12 okay that was the whole point of the study it was maybe a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek kind of uh, research but the point was is to look why of these 12 was there any significance as to why he picked them and from the business standpoint the only one of the 12 that would come back as an asset was Judas from background to lineage to you know Peter he, he kind of flew off the handle at times we had a tax collector no one would really want to work with him right so the point is this unassuming man caused, created the greatest act of betrayal the world has ever seen. One of the greatest acts of evil the world has ever seen. Judas, the word, the name, it means praise, the praised one. And as you'd expect, Judas is currently not in the top 100 of popular baby names in America, as you might believe. Iscariot, it likely designated the place of his birth. Um, however, some scholars suggest 
that Iscariot is very close to the old, the historical Aramaic word, which translates to assassin. So that could link his name with his betrayal. Some people could argue. But his responsibility among the 12, as we read here, he was the treasurer of the group. He handled the money, and he would often take off the top of the money bag. So we see this example played out in John chapter 12, when Jesus is anointed for burial by Mary, right? Mary's, the greatest thing that she thought she could do, the highest gesture she can think of, the best use of the resource she had, the most valuable thing that she had, a year's worth of salary poured out on his feet. This is a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. But we kind of get a taste, get a foreshadowing of Judas. What does he say? What a waste. What a waste. I think that there, there might be people in your life whenever, why, why do you get up so early to get in the Word? Why do you go pray? Why do you give so much money to the church and to the, why? Well, the great love with which, the great gift with which we have been given in Christ is so much greater than anything we can give back. Mary knew that. This gesture was a beautiful gesture, a convicting gesture of worship. And finally, the reveal. Verses 26 through 30. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. The significance of the morsel and the customs of the time, the morsel, the, 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 the plucking of the, of the bread, it was the, the meat, you know, some of you might like corner pieces of, of the brownie, right? And then there's other uh, uh, true believers of brownies who like middle pieces and like the squishy bit of the brownies. Uh, now, this was reserved, this morsel, this, for the guest of honor. It was reserved for someone of high esteem. John makes mention of this solemn moment by using Judas's full name here. He gets the morsel, dips it. Judas receives the morsel, and it says that Saint, Satan enters him. This is the only mention of Satan or the Satan in the gospel of in the gospel and what jesus says is to do quickly the disciples didn't understand what was happening they're still confused they're still perplexed this bomb had been dropped on them that one of their own was going to break the link in the chain what was going to cause the downfall of what they had seen but yet remember jesus knew and he said remember what is about to happen don't let it discourage you i know it's going to happen I'm here for it. 
Verse 30, Judas ironically and tragically obeys Jesus' command. He left the upper room immediately. He missed the institution of the Lord's Supper. He just got a morsel. He got a little taste when the meal was there. Now, one commentator said, the contrast and imagery is clear for John. Jesus is the light of the world, and those who believe in him come to the light and walk in the light. At the opposite extreme is Judas Iscariot, who rejected Jesus, cast in his lot with the powers of darkness, departed into the darkness, and was swallowed up by it. It's clear in John's writing that he's not, he's not only using it is night as a significance of time, but the imagery that we've been, that he has used all throughout John, of the light of the world has come, and now linking Judas with darkness. It paints the picture of not only the darkness he was entering into and associating himself with, but the image of the utter darkness that he would experience for all of eternity. This is humbling. This is humbling. Now this was not a fatalistic decree by God, and, and Judas cannot be exonerated by saying, well, well, the devil made me do it. No. He was responsible. He chose this. He acted he had surrendered to the dominion of evil and did not respond to Jesus' appeal. And yet, Scripture will be fulfilled. Amen. We're wrapping up. In conclusion, I think uh, the overview that Jesus would have us know from verses 18 through 30, he wanted the disciples to hear and believe his claims before his betrayal and crucifixion seemed to invalidate it. Not true. How does that directly apply to us? When you're going through the deepest darkness that you ever walked through, know that you have a loving Savior who is light. And he is there with you. He's walking with you. You're not alone. And that this is not outside of his control. He is in control but as i was reading this there's some potential legitimate lessons to learn from this account uh, the picture of uh, kind of in incredible opportunity that was wasted to know the beauty to know the personhood to know the life of jesus and throw it away man what what a lesson here this echoes the lesson that is probably most fearful for all pastors is that of Matthew 7, verse 22. Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right doctrine, Judas had doing miracles in the name of jesus check that box for judas he had been with the teacher of teachers 
the Word incarnate flesh. This proves to us and shows us doing these things proves nothing of saving faith. The work is done by Christ alone. Amen. There's another legitimate lesson, another takeaway we could have. Surely this is a picture of how damaging, how hurtful betrayal is and how involved the devil is at work in our world. There's no doubt we can pull that lesson from Scripture. There's a clear picture as we study the character of Judas and his life, the danger of loving money, the danger of loving power, of loving ambition. We need to check ourselves. We need to check ourselves. If, if we would say when someone pours out a year's worth of salary on Jesus' feet in utter beautiful worship, if our first thought is, what a waste. check ourselves we love money more than we love the worship of our king it's a good lesson to think about but i believe the ultimate lesson the ultimate takeaway from this account and i just notice i love how jesus isn't asking asking to be rescued from this treachery he's not like hold up here hold up here father if you could take this cup away and if we could just do a little rewind here. No, he doesn't say that. The ultimate lesson, absolutely nothing in the effort of sinful man can and will ever stall the absolute, perfect, sovereign plan of our God. Amen? Nothing. Nothing will stand in his way. Whatever evil you are going through is not outside the scope of our loving Father. Remember his character. Remember what he has done and what he has shown us and revealed to us in Scripture of who he is. This is the most important thing that we can learn. This is summarized in Genesis chapter 50. You know the story of Joseph. Jacob, his father, made him a really cool coat. His brothers were jealous of him and of the coat. What did they do? Well, they're going to kill him, but they're like, well, we can get some money out of this. We'll sell him into slavery. Years pass by. Joseph, faithful to God and faithful to honor the authorities above him, make Egypt great again. Fill the reserves for when the drought comes. And then his brothers come whenever there's drought in the land of Canaan, and they're like, well, what do we do here? We need to come. And they notice, that's our brother that we sold all those years ago. What does they do? They come to him and they say, hey, if, if you'll just take us, brother, just take us as a servant, that'll be fine with us. Just take us as a servant. And we know that you could have us put to death, but just take us as a servant. And Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am not in the place of God. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, to be able to stand up here and say that I understand that, I would be lying. But it doesn't mean that it's not true. What man means for evil in your life, trust that our sovereign God's plan is not thwarted. He's meaning it for good.
evil is present, it's pervasive, it's subtle, it's dominant, and it's all around. Sin is a powerful force in our world. But it is not ultimate, and it is not shaking our God. So, we remember John 16, kind of stealing a little bit from a future sermon. John 16, verse 33 It said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How has Jesus overcome the world? How? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How can we take heart and overcome the world? We fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, what was his future hope set before him? That he would sit at the right hand of his Father once again, be reunited when he was separated fully, because of our sin, entered into, the, into our world, became the substitution for us on our behalf at the cross, completely deserted for the first time by his Father. 